Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions, weekly podcast about anything and everything related to transfer pricing. Today, we're talking about one of the most important aspects of transfer pricing, i.e., don't mess this part up, benchmark requirements. With us today, we have Cross-Border Solutions' Michael Quirk. Michael is no stranger to benchmark requirements. As a senior transfer pricing manager, he works directly with clients to create localized transfer pricing documents meeting benchmark requirements from countries around the world. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for being here. To lead our discussion, we have Mimi Song, Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist, and at this point, podcast rock star. You may have heard her talking about compliance, hard-to-value intangibles, or the digital economy on previous episodes. And if not, what are you waiting for? Log on to our Facebook page, The Fiona Show XBS, and you'll see all of our podcast episodes listed there. And of course, Fiona, the anchor of our podcast and our artificially intelligent transfer pricing genius, is with us today to help keep our facts on track. Thanks for having me, Matt. Or, since it's my show, maybe you should thank me for having you. Yes, thanks, Fiona, for having me on here. And thanks for being here, everybody. Thanks for having us, Matt. One quick announcement, you can earn CPE credits by listening to The Fiona Show. Here's how it works. We're going to plant two CPE code words in this episode. Email the code words to us at The Fiona Show. That's one word, at crossbordersolutions.io. You will need to email both code words to receive your CPE credits. And once we receive those code words, we will send back your certificates. How easy is that? Now, before we get going on benchmark requirements, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Argentina's been busy. In December, the country published a decree introducing new transfer pricing regulations. Now here it is, barely summer, and what do you know? The tax authorities are already making changes to it. In a general resolution published on May 27th, the country simplified things by making one due date for Forms 743, 741, and 4501 and eliminating Form 969. Sure, it sounds good, but now you pretty much have to include Form 969's information on 743. Nice try, Argentina, but we're on to you. Speaking of forms, we should also mention there's a new threshold for Form 867. Independent parties have to submit it when transactions exceed 10 million pesos. As for related parties, if your individual transactions exceed 300,000 pesos or your total transactions in a given fiscal fiscal year exceed 3 million pesos, then you'll have to file Forms 743 and 4501 together. Incidentally, all transfer pricing documents must be filed with your financial statements by a deadline determined by, get this, the last digit in your tax ID number. And to think we started by saying Argentina was trying to make things simple. Silly us. No doubt Canada's revenue agency has a lot of power, but according to the Canadian federal court, there are limits. The CRA is still reeling from the famous transfer price in court case versus Cameco Corporation, which was decided in favor of Cameco last year, a decision which the CRA marched straight to the federal court of appeals, and the case is still setting precedents. 
Prior to court, the tax authorities put the company through a grueling audit. During the process, the CRA requested that Cameco make 25 worldwide employees available for questioning. The company declined but offered to answer questions in writing. That wasn't enough for the CRA, and the agency sought a compliance order claiming that under the Income Tax Act, the company had to comply. The federal court rejected the CRA's application, and surprise, surprise, the CRA headed back to the Federal Court of Appeals. Will they ever learn? Well, on April 3rd, the Court of Appeals seconded the federal court's rejection, claiming the CRA does not have the power to, and I quote, compel taxpayers to reveal their soft spots, unquote. Incidentally, that same month, the tax court had more good news for Cameco. The court awarded the company $10 million in reimbursement for legal fees. On May 31st, the CRA finally accepted defeat and released a statement stating it's still in the taxpayer's best interest to cooperate with audit requests, but at this time, the agency would not appeal the decision. Probably a good move, don't you think? If the bumpy start as a public company wasn't bad enough, now Uber could be on the road to transfer pricing adjustments, and lots of them. The IRS noticed a change in how Uber classified intellectual property in the U.S. and opened an audit for 2013 and 2014. But problems in the other jurisdictions go as far back as 2010 and all the way up to today. The ride-hailing app's unrecognized tax benefits are under the microscope in India, Brazil, the U.K., Netherlands, Mexico, Australia, and Singapore. Uber, for its part, doesn't seem worried, though unrecognized tax benefits stand to be reduced by at least $141 million over the next year. The company claims to have adequate amounts in reserve. So fasten your seatbelts. This is bound to be quite a ride. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Now it's finally time for what you've all been waiting for, a discussion that not only makes benchmark requirements easy to understand, but interesting as well. Bring it home, Mimi. Thanks, Matt. Michael, it's great to have you on the podcast. And uh, before we dive into the ins and outs of transfer pricing, let's learn a little bit about you. All right? Sure. So did you ever learn about transfer pricing in university? Honestly, not really. I don't think I even heard the term until I applied here. Um, I studied economics down at Virginia Tech, um, but I definitely don't think we covered anything related to transfer pricing. But when I came in an interview, I did a quick little research about it. Mm-hmm. It's had something, something interesting that I would want to learn more about, and here I am now. <laughs> 
So what is it that you uh, like about transfer pricing? I think one of the things about transfer pricing is that it's kind of always changing and developing into different ways and kind of keeps things interesting because even though it's kind of the same thing over again, there's always little wrinkles, whether it comes to clients or certain country regulations that you got to change. So it keeps things interesting. Hmm. So if you were to imagine yourself 10 years from now, how do you think your career would have developed? I think 10 years from now, I think uh, I first see myself just becoming more knowledgeable in the subject and just growing my knowledge base. And I'm kind of a go-with-the-flow kind of guy, so I don't know exactly where that career ends up, but I hope it kind of sticks with transfer pricing. Good. And so any advice for young professionals actually considering a career in transfer pricing? Yeah, I think you just have to be ready to kind of roll with the punches because I think things change uh, based on depending on the client or depending on the certain situation. It's not always going to be the same thing, so you can't. You have to be ready to adapt to every situation. Right, and and I actually think that hasn't even changed since I started in transfer pricing, <laughs> to be honest, which was a little bit before you started, <laughs> but just a little. Just a little bit, yeah. So let's get down to business. So last week, we actually talked about profit-based economic analyses. And in order to perform a profit-based economic analysis, we as transfer pricing practitioners have to do a comparable search, or otherwise also known as a benchmarking study, right? So can you first explain to us, what does a, what is a benchmarking study? What is a comparable search? Right. So a benchmarking study, when we say that in transfer pricing, it just means that it's the set of comparable observations, which could be companies or agreements, that we use in transfer pricing documentation to support the uh, intercompany transaction that we're testing. Okay. And then we did touch upon that last week, too, because really, in a profit-based analysis, we end up benchmarking one side of the transaction, right? A tested party. Right. So the tested party is the side of the transaction that we're testing. Uh, usually, it goes. We, we aim for the more simple side, where the profits that it's recording is more directly tied to the transaction itself. Okay. Because you don't want to choose the more complicated side where the profits, you can't really tell where the profit's coming from. It makes it harder to support the arm's length uh, nature of that transaction. Right. Which is a, a, a nice reiteration of what we learned last week. So why exactly is a benchmarking study even necessary? To start, it's obviously necessary just because it's legally required by most countries. Mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely probably the most important part of the local documentation, the local file, because it supports, as I said earlier, it supports the arm's length nature of the transaction. So without that, you're kind of just talking about the transaction and not really saying, or not really showing how it is arm's length. Right. So, you know, I, I know a lot of countries actually require you to perform a benchmarking analysis in the application of certain methods, right? But there's also a, an aspect about this is that benchmarking is, is, is pretty important, not only for transfer pricing method purposes, but also can be pretty important to an organization. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, when we create benchmarks here, it's not always just for the purpose to put into a uh, local file. We, always, we can always provide uh, companies for benchmarks for other reasons, such as uh, planning or just to get, have them help them get the sense of the market at the current time. Maybe, maybe they want to see a certain localized region so we can help, we can help create a benchmark for that purpose, too. Hmm. And so enlighten our audience here. What are the types of things you have to think about 
before you actually perform a benchmarking study? Or, and then what are the th- types of things you have to think about as you're going through the process? Right. So when we start uh, creating a benchmark study here at Cross Border, we usually want to have a good understanding of the, the functions of the tested party, the assets that it holds, and the other kind of risks that uh, they assume, because uh, that really helps center the uh, search strategy to companies that we would deem comparable. And then once you have that kind of search strategy in place, you would go into the database, which we use a, a lot of different ones here. But once you go into the database, you would kind of try to find the ones out of that database that you would determine to be the best uh, available comparables within that database. And what would make a company a good comparable? There's a lot of different schools of thought on that, I think. You can mm-hmm. kind of base it off of a lot of different factors, such as function or industry. I think the best way to do it is fo- focus on function rather than industry, because as long as it's the similar function, such as like contract manufacturing, the uh, markup should be similar regardless of the industry. Yeah, and it's a, it's a return based on the functions actually being performed, right, and, and the level of risks assumed and the assets employed. So, and this is basic economics. You studied economics, right? I did. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I started in transfer pricing, I actually think that this was the first time where I actually came to the realization of, of what, what an appropriate economic return would be and how that plays into the, in a real-world scenario. Exactly, yeah. I think that's kind of one of the more interesting parts of this too, right? Because uh, I know when I have conversations with you about a lot of different scenarios that I face when we're, when we're dealing with clients mm-hmm. is um, you kind of say to me, like, hey, you got to think about what actually is being performed here. So even though they say it's a distributor, they might actually be performing distribution functions. They might right. be doing a little something else. Right. And that's actually a really important point, too, because companies might tell you, hey, we perform functions A, B, C. But then what happens? It might be that you do a function interview and a company will, will tell you the functions, and you say, actually, you perform functions DEF, right? <laughs> right, yeah. I definitely say that a lot when it comes to uh, intercompany agreements. They have these intercompany agreements hashed out with certain kind of functions, but then when you actually do the interview itself, you, you find out that they don't really do that. It, they do more of something else. Right. And I'm going to interject here with our first CPE word. That word is magnificent, as in, isn't it magnificent having all of this insight on transfer pricing here on the Fiona Show here today? Thank you so much. And again, that word is magnificent. All right. Well, back to the real meat and potatoes of the podcast here, right? So we we talked a little bit about the idea of benchmarking and the criteria you're going to be exploring when we do a benchmarking study. Now, where do we get the data? Where do you where do we get comparable company data? Right. So, we have a lot of different sources of data that we use here. To start off, I guess we have Standards and Poor's, which is a, a public company database. So, mm-hmm. that's a, a, one of the main sources of data. But then we have a lot of data that uh, kind of fills in the gaps. So, we have a lot of private company databases, such as EMIS, which would focus on the uh, emerging markets regions. Right, and, and, and to be honest, that database was not available when I was doing transfer pricing studies. <laughs> yeah, no. There's, searches, I should say. <laughs> there's definitely a lot now, a lot, a lot of different databases. Um, we also have uh, private databases specific to Russian comparables, such as Spark, 
uh, Indian comparables such as Prowess or Capital Line. We also have an Australian database called Illion. And then when it comes to um, not uh, comparable companies uh, searches, but when we search for uh, comparable loans or bonds, we have a tool called Refinitiv, Refinitiv Icon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was actually the old Loan Connector database. So there's a lot of available data sources for transfer pricing practitioners. And truthfully, you know, not all practitioners use the same databases. Now, a lot of feedback, and I'm sure you get this all the time too, Michael, is where customers or and or prospects actually say, do you have this database or do you have that database? And I've heard that this country has a preference for a certain type of database. How do you address that question? Right, yeah, I've definitely heard uh, some clients come to us with, like, requests or questions about what database is preferred by tax authorities. Mm -hmm. While while tax authorities may have a preference for, like, a local database, there's definitely no regulation mandating that specific database. So as long as the data is reliable and sufficient enough to create a benchmark study, it doesn't particularly matter. For Mm -hmm. example, all public company data is publicly available information. So regardless of the database you're using, regardless of the brand name of the database, it's going to be the same exact information. What about private company data? We get this question a lot. What do you think? Right. Private company data comes from credit rating agencies and other public registries. So it's kind of similar to the public companies where the data is going to be the same regardless of the particular database provider. Yeah. And it doesn't really affect the outcome of the benchmarks. Right. I actually think that, you know, when 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 tax authorities or companies sort of focus on the database as opposed to the outcome of the comparable search, I kind of think that's a red herring at times. Right. <laughs> Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer, cross-border solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp so let's ask fiona for the first time during this podcast fiona how often do benchmarking studies have to be updated every year mimi and it's a good thing to do anyway so that you can keep up with market conditions so it mike you know in your experience what what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen companies um, companies have in their benchmarking studies? I think one of the bigger mistakes uh, I see, Mimi, is uh, companies using these uh, generic regional searches that don't really adjust the search strategy to meet 
the local guidelines of the tax jurisdiction that the report be filed in. Mm -hmm. uh, just because when you alter the search strategy to the local localized uh, regulations, you might come with a little different outcome, but more importantly, you'll appease the uh, tax authority, and they won't throw out, throw out your benchmark and create their own. Yeah, and, and there are a lot of times where we still have customers who actually want a regional search versus a country-specific search, right? I think there is a, a bit of value to regional benchmarks. It gives you um, a greater sense of the market, I think. You know, mm -hmm. you get a, a wider view of it, per se. Uh, but I definitely think for compliance purposes that the localized benchmark that uh, matches the regulations of the tax authority is the uh, better approach. Right. Well, better from a protection perspective, right? So along those lines, explain exactly what exactly do you mean by, you know, a local comparable versus a regional comparable? What And and tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, you know, are you even able to find companies? Right. So a local comparable would just be a, a comparable company that comes from the country that you will be filing in. Um, and then a regional one would just be, com be coming from a region such as Europe or Africa. Um, there's definitely a preference for tax authorities to use local comparables just because it limits the factors that vary between the countries in the region, such as marking conditions or other kind of financial conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, but, there, but the idea of having a expanding a search to the region is still not unheard of just because you're still limited by the database, the data itself. So if there's no data available, you'll have to expand out, even though there's definitely a, a lot more countries now mandating local comparables. Sometimes expanding outwards is necessary. Right, right. I mean, you know, if you think about it in the public company space, for example, there's a very finite number of publicly available companies, right? And so if you're trying to find publicly available companies in a certain geographic market, performing the same functions you're trying to benchmark, you're now even further limiting the availability of data. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, at that point, if, you, if the data is that limited, some kind of adjustment needs to be made, whether it's the search strategy or adjustments to the comparables themselves. And, you know, adjustments, right? We Adjustments are definitely an important part of performing a benchmarking study. What kind of adjustments are typically applied? Right. So when we uh, say adjustments uh, in, re in regards to transfer pricing, in regards to the comparables, uh, usually what we're referring to is working capital adjustments, mm -hmm. which are, which is an attempt to kind of adjust uh, comparables to similar balance sheet items of a tested party, such as like inventory or accounts receivable or accounts payable. The theory is that... Uh, having different levels of those three categories may affect the profitability of the company. So we try to standardize that to the tested party to create a more reliable uh, profitability outcome. Right. You know, the way that I would think about it in the most simplest terms is that let's just take one component. Let's take inventory, for example, right? A company that holds a high-level inventory could potentially have held a high level of inventory because they were able to get a, a significant volume discount on the purchase of that inventory at that moment in time. So their purchase price is lower, but that inventory is held on the balance sheet 
until they actually sell the inventory. And the idea here is that their cost of goods sold would get adjusted based on the fact that, you know, if your tested party held a different level of inventory versus a potentially comparable company, their cost of goods sold would look very different, right? Right, yeah. I, I definitely think the uh, the theory behind it is very interesting with the way that these adjustments are, how they're supposed to work and how they, how they do work. Right. Another different benchmarking requirement is actually single-year versus multi-year analysis. Can you explain to our audience the difference? So, yeah. So, the single-year single analysis just means that you take the most recently available year of data and use that as your comparable data, and you compare your tested party's profitability with that year. But the multi-year analysis just means you take the data from a, of the comparable companies for a certain set of uh, years, usually it's three to five years, depending on the tax authority. And then you would just take the weighted average of those to create the arm's length range of uh, profit level indicators. Tax authorities typically use multi-years of data because, in fact, there's there's this idea or concept of business cyclicality, right? So because of business cycles, because of, of seasonality and things of that nature, looking at multi-years of data helps to smooth out any differentiation related to business cycles. Australia is one of the more extreme cases where they like to look at five years of data versus three years of data. But, you know, on average, I think the industry standard is to look at three years of historical data, which I always find it very strange that certain countries only look at a single year of data. So it's it, I, I feel like looking at just one year doesn't really account for um, you know, business decisions and and business decisions that can have an overall impact to the operating framework of a company. So, Fiona, countries often mandate an interquartile range or a full range. What do they mean in terms of benchmark requirements? Are you going to start asking any actual challenging questions anytime soon? The results of comparable transactions produce a range of results. If you remove the top quarter and the bottom quarter, you get the interquartile range. A full range means you can use the full range of comparisons. Canada is a good example of that and many countries across the world specify whether they want an interquartile range in their benchmarking. Yeah, so usually comparisons are calculated using the Excel uh, formula for interquartile range, except for the U.S., which has its own calculations, uh, the IRS interquartile range. Yeah, they like to make it a little bit different. So another interesting little piece of benchmarking what would you say fresh benchmarking searches every year versus a quote roll forward of financial data you know every country has different requirements mike what do you think about those two approaches right well so just to define them real quick i guess uh the roll forward method is kind of just using the same comparable companies but updating the financials and then the other one having just a new competition every year would mean you have to go through the whole search strategy and the whole reviewing all the companies kind of thing again. As you were saying, I think uh, it depends on what country you are filing in to determine what kind of approach you want to take. Okay. And what about the idea of, of a simple average versus a weighted average? I mean, these are mathematical concepts, not necessarily transfer pricing concepts. Uh, can you explain what, what, that, what the difference is between the two averaging approaches? Right. So uh, a simple average would just be uh, taking the observations and adding them up and then dividing it by the number of observations. But the, the weighted average takes uh, the components and multiplies it by a weight, 
uh, usually it's a percentage of, to signify how much the figure matters. Uh, and then in a period weighted average, it makes it so certain years count more than others, which is the kind of uh, average we would use here. Well, actually, the period weighted average weights the years, right? So weights certain years more heavily. So, for example, in a period weighted average, you might weight the current year as being more important than the prior two years. In transfer pricing, the weighted average we apply is actually weighted based on the uh, the volume of the transact or the volume of the comparable company financial data. Can you explain that to us, Mike? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I guess for example, if a company makes twenty five percent operating margin in one year, where it makes a million dollars of sales, versus the five percent operating margin in each of the other years of the analysis, where sales is only a hundred dollars per year, the million dollar year revenue with a 20% margin skews the weighted average operating margin to around 25%, um, 24.99 to be more precise. <laughs> and then it, for comparison, the simple average of uh, 25, 5, and 5 would just be 12%. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. So that really highlights exactly what the difference between is between a weighted average versus a simple average. And in transfer pricing, what's more commonly used, a simple average or a weighted average? Uh, for sure, the more uh, popular choice is the weighted average for uh, tax authorities. Uh, some tax authorities don't uh, explicitly say a preference. The ones that do have a preference usually choose weighted average. Okay. So... It's interesting, and you you might actually not know this little bit of history, right? Before you started transfer pricing in India, they – well, first, why don't you tell our audience, what kind of range does India calculate today? <laughs> right. So India is definitely a peculiar one. Uh, instead of an interquartile range, they uh, the range that they consider the arm's length range would be from the 35th percentile to the 65th percentile. Right. But many years ago – India actually calculated the arm's length range by using a simple average, the mean, right, of all the uh, benchmark or accepted comparable companies. And based on that mean, they would allow you to add plus uh, 5% and subtract 5%. And the interquartile range would be this range of 5% surrounded from the mean. But clearly that has changed today, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Do you think that would have been a simpler approach? I mean, it definitely sounds simpler than calculating <laughs> uh, a bunch of different percentiles. That's true. So when we think about a, preparing a benchmarking study, any other factors that need to be considered 
that we haven't already touched upon, Mike? Right. So a lot of, there are actually a lot of factors that you kind of all want to take into account just based off of different uh, country regulations. As I was saying, that's kind of one of the, the deadly sins of transfer pricing, just having generic regional benchmarks that don't take into account local regulations. So, for example, there's a lot of different criteria, such as in Austria, they look for comparable companies that are independently owned and not subsidiaries. A lot of countries have specific loss criteria, which means you can't use companies with negative operating profits because it would sway the range. I know uh, Belarus is kind of strict on that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, another one that I know off the top of my head is uh, Belgium, which uh, they would require you to reject startup companies or companies that were active for less than three years because uh, startup companies are definitely uh, different than companies that have been well-established in the industry. Right, right. And, you know, when we think about a benchmarking study versus the the actual full-blown transfer pricing report, is there ever a reason why a company might just do a benchmark versus a full-blown transfer pricing study? Yeah, I think as we were discussing before, uh, one of the reasons we would create a benchmark for a company that doesn't necessarily want to put it into their transfer pricing report right away is just for planning purposes. It's uh, good to get an idea of what... Uh, the market is kind of telling you and uh, what kind of margin or markup it you can support with the uh, the current data on hand. But would a benchmarking study protect you from penalties and or potential adjustments? No, definitely not. That's <laughs> definitely uh, one of the things that we stress here is that we can create you a benchmark, but it's not going to kind of hold water when it comes to a tax authority. Fiona, maybe you can help us with this one. Is there are, are there other situations where a company might only want a benchmarking study versus a local file? Finally, a tricky one. It's generally not advisable to prepare only a benchmarking study, but there are times when it's okay. For example, if a small company doesn't meet a country's threshold criteria for documentation, the company may prepare a benchmarking study to gauge competition. All right, so Mike, this has been great, and I, I think most people would find uh, the information you presented very, very informative. I've got one last question for you from my side. You know, based on your time at Cross Border Solutions, they, clearly you've done a lot of benchmarking to become a manager, right? <laughs> How many benchmarks do you think you've benchmark studies have you do you think you've put together? Oh man, that sounds like one of those uh, Google interview questions. Yeah. <laughs> How many ping pong balls fit in a 747? Don't worry, you already have the job. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't even give a guess. Uh, thousands, I guess. <laughs> thousands you heard it here thank you mimi and thank you michael that was way more interesting than i thought uh i learned a lot and here's some more good news it's time for what we want to know our rapid fire interview round and michael quirk is in the hot seat are you ready michael here we go think of your biggest mentor what did you learn from him or her i think some of the the best advice i've been given um was just you have to be really be pushed to your limit to grow. So just because you're feeling overwhelmed uh, doesn't mean stop. It just means keep going. And once you're through it, you'll be uh, better off for it. Hypothetically, members of your team describe you as super smart. Other members describe you as super hardworking. Which one are you most proud of and why? Uh, I would definitely be more proud of being uh, super hardworking because I, I feel like a oh, good work ethic can kind of make up for lack of smarts on certain occasions, but I don't think the case is the same for the other way around. And finally, give us one of your strategies for managing up. I could really use one. 
Right. So that's one of the things I don't have too much experience with, uh, being relatively new here and new to the corporate world in general. But uh, I think just good communication is always a good uh, positive uh, trait to have. Now, those are challenging questions, Matt. Even I would struggle with a few, and I'm a genius. Indeed you are, Fiona. Thanks for being here, everyone. That's all we have time for today. Listeners, if you can't get enough transfer pricing, and let's be honest, who can, then subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Spotify or listen to episodes on our Facebook page. Speaking of our Facebook page, feel free to post questions there, and we'll answer them on our next episode of The Fiona Show. Until next time, this is Matt DeMello saying out. Out.